I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is The Life of a Song, a monthly music podcast from the FT. In each episode, we explore the biography of a different song its origins, cover versions, how it's evolved over time. But today, we're looking at various songs and albums, all released 50 years ago in 1968. What happened in music that year, and why was it so important? I'm David Cheel. I edit the Life of a Song series, published in the Weekend FT and online every week. I'm joined in the studio by the writer and curator Tot Taylor, who published his debut novel, The Story of John Knightley, last year. Hello. I'm also joined by Peter Afton, who writes about pop and much else for the FT. Hi, David. So, uh, 1968, it's the year after the Summer of Love, it's the year before Woodstock, but it seems to be a sort of a transitional year in some ways. Peter, what are your feelings about the year? Does it have a theme? Is there a mood? The mood is one of um, of things falling apart, uh, breaking up. I think what you say about it following 1967 is really important. 67 gets massively hyped as this extraordinary feel-good, hippy-dippy occasion. And um, even in 67 itself, you get the first signs of a kind of cynicism towards that. Mm. Uh, two things which are created in 67, but actually achieve wider public resonance in 1968. One is um, Frank Zappa and the Mother's Invention, We're Only mm. In It For The Money, which really rips apart the hippie scene, makes fun of it in the most scabrous way. Um, Zappa always hated hippies, didn't Absolutely. Um, also, rather contrasting from that, the great Joan Didion uh, writes the essay Slouching Towards Bethlehem, where she lives with the hippies and writes this really disturbing account of what it's like, a, a world that's fracturing. And Tot, a lot of your, your novel, the, the Story of John Knightley, is rooted in the 60s, and 68 is a particular year in, in the story. Why did you choose that year and that era? Um, I chose the era because the period between, say, 65, which I think is the kickoff point for pop music, and 1973 is the, the, the point at which you get a development. You, almost on a weekly basis, songwriting is improving, record production is improving, and music artists' ideas are coming at you. Um, obviously, with the Beatles, Jimmy Webb, uh, Bacharach, they're all kind of trying to get to the next stage. And I think that 1968 is a, is a sort of watershed year. See Emily Play has been, and Whiter Shade of Pale has been, and we're coming up to MacArthur Park, and we're coming up to Eloise, and we're coming up to the introduction of where, where classical music or modern classical music meets pop music for the first time with bands like The Nice... And there's um, a sense of things being sort of what we might call purely conceptual. Sure. It was an interesting year for 
English music in particular. So uh, I thought we could have a, a listen to... This is the first album from a group called Tyrannosaurus Rex, who obviously went on to become T-Rex, and this is Deborah. Oh, Deborah, you look like a stallion. Oh, Deborah, you look like a stallion. There we have um, the young Mark Bolan, the kind of hippie kid. What are your impressions of that, Todd? Um, I love it. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of what we might call watch with mother vocals, I- I'd say. You've got sort of Ravi Shankar's influence in the background with these um, tablas going on. Mm. Um, it's, it's a very musical voice and a, and a very musical concept i remember i'm slightly slightly younger than todd um, i was 10 and i was at primary school uh, when uh, 10 in 1968 and i had a friend who had a very very hip older sister and he used to come in and talk about these exotic things one of which was this group tyrannosaurus rex and mm. of course this mm. captured my 10 year old's imagination hugely and i listened to the songs i can't honestly say i liked them very much they sounded very weird to me but i remember very clearly in 1970 when t-rex the, the evolved uh, band brought out rider white swan and they appeared on top of the pops uh, i at the uh, at the um, great wise age of 12 declaring that actually i much preferred their earlier yes. acoustic <laughs> stuff <laughs> yeah i think i think i remember doing the same thing hearing getting to know T-Rex, but then, as a lot of music fans do, working backwards and discovering that they were almost not, not unrecognisable, but there was a huge difference. This sort of, in a short period, they went from being, you know, hippie child, elfin child to glam rock. It was a remarkable change. But, of course, this, the, the rapid mutation of bands, mm. the Beatles being exemplary in this sense, was yeah. something that was quite common, actually. They, yeah. They, they, this taking on new musical styles and yeah. and, and Bowie of course takes it to, to yet another level yeah next up the small faces released uh, what was possibly one of the first ever concept albums in a remarkable packaging Ogden's nut gone flake which was uh, re- released to begin with in, in what was essentially a huge uh, tobacco tin uh, and this was a sort of story with uh, Stanley Unwin's gibberish uh, narrative uh, and included the the classic Lazy Sunday. I've got no time to worry. Close my eyes and drift away. This is interesting because you've got these kind of mod kids, but it's it's mod meets hippie meets psychedelia. It's a fantastic song and so English. I mean, mm. archetypally, you get this lovely psychedelic effect, which sort mm. of takes you out of it. But yet it's rooted in these great lyrics, you know, wouldn't it be nice to get on with your neighbour? Mm. Oh, yeah. mustn't grumble. Yeah, 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 grumble. yeah exactly. Yeah. I mean, that extraordinary combination, mm. which um, was so, so appealing, really. Yeah. I like the idea that it's got this sort of English music hall um, thing about it, as in, say, the Kinks or, or whatever, and some of the Beatles music as well. I love uh, music that's always referring back through stages to, mm. to previous music and not ashamed to do that. Yeah. They're not trying to sort of get away from anything. They're trying to celebrate where they feel they are. Beautiful Would one-off. You get in one-off early records. Pink Floyd as well. Like, you know, yeah, early Pink Floyd, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. The, yeah, yeah, see, absolutely. Emily Play is the yeah. epic 
example. Yeah. Yeah. And again, um, like Bolin, the, this was a band who went on to become Rod, essentially Rod Stewart's backing band in, yeah. a, in a pretty short, short space of time. So you've got transitions happening very quickly. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Pink Floyd, Tot. This was the year, an important year for them because it was the year of uh, A Saucer Full of Secrets and uh, one of the particular tracks from that set the controls for the heart of the sun. So here we are, Pink Floyd, Sid Barrett is on his way out, David Gilmore has joined. This was a big year for them, wasn't it, Peter? Yeah, it was, absolutely. And the seeing the um, the recent show at the Victorian Albert Museum, uh, which I thought was fantastic, that's Floyd at their most experimental. That's music to just kind of what we what would now call chill out. That was mm. certainly not a phrase back then. <laughs> um, almost certainly take some kind of drug with open-ended, could go anywhere, spacey, which turns into the, in the 1970s to their most successful music with Dark Side of the Moon, etc., which I personally already began to find a little bit ponderous and a little bit boring. But there's no doubt that was a, that was a hugely influential period for them. I find this particularly tra- track fairly boring actually i mean it's a drone in a sense it's the opposite of what was actually happening so what was happening during this this two or three year period and particularly in 1968 is the expansion of harmony that's really what it is um you've got more and more and more and more chords more and more orchestras this could be the blueprint it just just came into my head right right now for riders on a storm mm. sounds like that kind mm-hmm. of it, it's sort of they're already doom laden whereas the the sid barrett records were sort of childlike they were doom laden as well they were sort of frightening but eccentric this is not eccentric anymore yeah. uh, you know i don't but, find but, it the but most don't you think top you know th- this is one of the things about 68 is that it's it's actually all happening isn't yeah. it, it it's, yeah. it's it's such an eclectic as i mm. said experimental year yes. mm. that you have the tautest of beautiful pop songs and you have the most self-indulgent long and rather boring as you say it's quite difficult to sit through these mm. days it's, yes, it's a all happening it's an mm. extraordinary uh, mm. melting pot i mean f- f- to use a cliche but uh, it's very very difficult to put your finger on one any one thing in fact it would be wrong I mean. you have got the singer songwriter thing though which is a new thing you know getting yeah. rid of the performer and the um, the songwriter now is the performer, whether they can sing or not. You know, mm. people in bands are starting to think of themselves less than one part of a band, but as four singer-songwriters in a band, you know, yeah. Crosby, Stills and Nash, whatever. I feel a bit of the, you know, and you feel competition within yes. the bands is coming yeah. in as well. And, and Dylan must have been. And Dylan, Dylan yeah, who has course. an incredibly quiet 1968, yes. by the way. Yes. Um, no albums, he's still mm-hmm. kind of recuperating, <clears throat> get his country act together uh, in Nashville and things but yeah I mean all those people uh, I think were inspired I mean certainly Lennon was you know thinking yeah. okay if I can do that and yeah. know, sit with an acoustic guitar and write my own songs yeah, yeah. Um, talking of which I mean all of the examples we've heard of so far have been very English sounding uh, across the Atlantic the singer-songwriter thing was kind of taking off with the first album from Joni Mitchell and we're going to listen to her song I Had a King Won't fit the door You know my thoughts 
So Joni Mitchell had been around on the folk scene for a few years, but Song to a Seagull was her first album in 1968. Um, and it's a sort of classic singer-songwriter album, isn't it, Tot? Yeah, I mean, this song, if, if you look, if you, you can find on YouTube these days, you know, you can see her in, say, 1965 in this kind of hootenanny kind of uh, <laughs> um, style. Here she's using part of both sides now. She's using the, the, the bit just before the bridge. Da, 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 da. You know, she's reusing that, which a lot of songwriters do. And mm. that's part of folk music as well. Mm. Um, this turned into jazz, essentially. It turned into sort of modern jazz. In fact, very personal lyrics, Peter. Yeah, I I I love Joni Mitchell. I, I I don't I don't think the early stuff is the the best stuff, but but I I think already you can see really her transcending those folk music roots, which talk, talked about very very quickly, and a lyrical and musical sophistication. Mm. Uh, you know, she famously used kind of quite strange open tunings, and, and that evolves from from sixty eight to well in less than ten years to. To Hijara, uh, well, first hissing of summer lawns, Hijara, Mingus, very jazzy. That's an extraordinarily fast and sophisticated, and I think brilliant musical evolution. So again, we're into sort of things changing very quickly, yeah, yeah, e- sure. e- evolving very, very quickly. So in the meantime, um, the White Album, it's almost like in a category by itself, isn't it? Um, an extraordinary piece of work from the Beatles, which came out, quite, I think, quite late in the year. Top, you've chosen a song from this, Martha, my dear. When you find yourself in the thick of it, help yourself to a better what is all around you. Silly girl, take a good look around. So, Tom, from the sprawling, epic, magnificent uh, masterpiece that is the White Album, why did you choose this particular song? Okay, well, I chose Martha, my dear, because it's so underrated and overlooked. It's difficult to say that about any Beatles record, but but this one is. The the White Album was was issued on the 22nd of November. In fact, Beatles records um, were always timed to come out for Christmas presents as as well as, well as anything else. Um, this the White Album was the first record I ever bought, um, sponsored by my parents. I trucked down to the local post office where they they always sold just ten records um, on the morning of release, and they were looking for it. They couldn't find it because they were looking for a picture of the mop tops on it, and they found this thing which said the Beatles on it and gave it to me. The sleeve designed by Richard. Hamilton, of course. I, I took it home, and uh, as I took the thing out of the package, I assumed that the sliced apple, the white side apple, was side one. So I put it on. Um, I put the needle down on the thing, and I heard these crushed sort of Debussy-esque chords, as I know them to be now. And it's just entranced me so much. I was kind of levitating in my parents' front room. And I picked the needle up again. It hadn't got to the vocal yet and put it back to the crushed chords. And I must have done that about four or five times. I'd never heard a sound like this kind of piano thing. I mean, it's it's Debussy or or maybe Poulenc or something meets Russ Conway. That's really, <laughs> really what it is. But this song and John's epic sort of self-deprecating revolution... Um, illustrate the sort of opposing personalities of the group. Sing, 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 sing
very upbeat, let's get on with it, cool, against John's more cynical, do we really have to, um, mm. sort of response. But they, they both carry on um, creating equally great songs. Martha's a kind of vaudeville thing. It's one of the Beatles pastiche or parody songs. There's, I can also hear Fred Astaire in there. I can hear Noel Coward in there. It's very up very eloquent lyrics as well very beautiful it's, lyrics. it's about a sheepdog I think is that yeah, right Peter? About, yeah it's about his sheepdog which you know is the thing with McCartney you know you always want to say throw away you also oh it's a sheepdog it's a little ditty he just sat down but the sophistication is mm. as, as the, the, the said, changes of pace the changes yeah, of tempo amazing um, I had such a similar experience with the White Album um, as I said I was 10 in 68 I had been into Beatlemania since I was 5 I know that sounds ridiculous but Beatlemania was such a thing and the songs were so accessible that a five or six year old could mm. happily join in with them. You didn't and have a plastic wig, did you? I did. I did have a plastic wig <laughs> and a little ukulele, which I called my Beatles guitar. Um, I did have a plastic wig, yeah. And I remember very clearly asking my parents to buy me um, the White Album for Christmas. It was quite expensive. I yeah, it was, a double yeah. album. Yeah. Mm. But uh, they said, oh, well, okay. And I said to my mum, look, it, yeah, it's white. It's just white. Said, what do you mean? My, my kind of Greek, very unhip mother, you know. So well, what do you mean? White? White? Just white? You know, I said, look, it's just white. There's no picture of them, you know. Uh, anyway, and, and, and I think the important point here, as it relates to 68, is sitting down and listening to this extraordinary assembly of things, some which I loved instantly, like Martha, my dear, mm. and others which absolutely confused me, but it kind of made me want to understand them. You know, mm. why don't we do it in the road? I had no idea what that mm. was about. But that period, it, it, it was a period of experimentation which made people want to kind of engage with yeah. it. I used to listen to it obsessively. I think yeah. a, a little bit later than you when I when I got to it. But yes, I used to just listen to the whole thing through yeah. again and again and again because there's so there was so much depth and variety and yeah. and strangeness in there. So sixty eight was a pretty tumultuous year for. Um, Politics, social upheaval, student riots, protests, assassinations, and yet, strangely, not much of this seems to come through in the music. The Rolling Stones' Street Fighting Man on the Beggar's Banquet album came out that year. But w w do you think the the music reflected this year, Peter? Uh, some of it did. I mean, again, there's there's... I think there's a relationship between the experimental nature of the music and the the radicalism on the streets. And, and I think if you were of of an age, I think you really did think that you were able to sort of change the world and you were inspired by this spirit of breaking down walls and pushing boundaries forward. Um, Revolution, uh, the Beatles song, the John Lennon song, uh, is an interesting case in point. Uh, Todd, you, you described it as self-deprecating, which it is. It has self-deprecation in it. You're not really sure. I thought, well, for me, I'm not really sure what Lennon thinks about this. So in the in the version of Revolution which we just listened to, which is the slow version, uh, we get Lenin prevaricating on a really important line. If you're going to talk about destruction, don't you know that you can count me out in? He actually sings out in, out slash in, leaving us to wonder, well, actually, whose side are you on, mm, yeah. Lenin? Um, yes, he got, a, he got a quite a hard time from He for, did for, indeed. For that, and, and I think reflecting, I think it quite accurately reflected his own 
state of mind because mm. there was this there were violent revolutionaries around there and there was still enough of the peace loving hippie vibe and mm. those were so at conflict with each other and mm. and Lenin had a little bit of both in them I think but maybe like Dylan he didn't want to be a spokesman for a generation absolutely yeah uh, meanwhile, across the Atlantic, the singer-songwriter thing was still in full flow, and uh, a young singer-writer called Tim Buckley was starting out. A piece that you've chosen, Song to the Siren. Yeah, well, Tim Buckley was a r- remarkable, sui generis singer-songwriter, I think. Um, it took a very long time for, for people to catch up with him, I think. I've actually chosen a moment. Um, there was a programme called The Monkeys, uh, which we all remember well, mm. which was a kind of very wacky, anarchic, um, crazy programme about a fictional band called The Monkeys. Well, how fictional they were is uh, is open to discussion. Um, loosely based on the Beatles' antics in the Richard mm. Lester films. Very surreal. But, of course, as it grew up and The Monkeys themselves grew up and every and the 60s grew up, it changed and and it became less comedic and they wanted to make serious points and they used to have guest appearances and in the very last episode uh, right at the end of the episode when it's finished um, a a disembodied voice says uh, ladies and gentlemen Tim Buckley and Tim Buckley appears and and sings this song song to the siren uh, on a 12-string acoustic guitar it's a very very beautiful song and a a lovely performance of it and really um, it's a testament to the to the mood of introspection that was another mood i think of 1968 mm. there was so much going on that i think the singer songwriter was sort of people drawing into themselves mm. a bit as the end of yeah. that idea of collectivism and really exploring their own feelings in the way that romantic poets did buckley did it beautifully did i dream you dreamed about me were you Tot, there's something very beautiful about the way um, Tim Buckley sings that song, delivers the lyrics. It's otherworldly. It's this thing where you can't quite understand what's... What's the, what the plan is, and you shouldn't try to. Um, he's kind of out of his head in, in one sense. I don't mean drug-wise, I mean musically. It's just a very individual kind of cloud up there. Um, it's very, very American. I can't imagine a, a, a sort of a, a British songwriter coming up with that. And, and it took a while before Tim Buckley recorded it. I think he was unhappy with There's a bit of the lyrics where he says, I'm as puzzled as the oyster. And I think eventually they changed it to I'm as puzzled as a newborn child, which he was a lot happier with. Yes, it's a um, better line, I think. I think it's so scary, yes. um, But uh, there seems to be something kind of um, almost classical about the way Tim Buckley's singing that. It's a very calm and... It's very elegant. The mm. lines are laid out in a poetic way. Buckley was also one of these people who really progressed very fast and into quite obscure areas. Mm. He was not a popular Mm. figure, you know, and by the time we get to his uh, records in the 70s... They're they're very experimental. They're very experimental and hard to listen to. Mm. And, uh, you know, this is another great thing about that time, which is... uh, there weren't, or there may have been, record company executives tapping on the shoulder saying, look, we need to sell some units here. But if there were, he ignored them, and they let him get on with it. 
Yeah, they did. There was a lot more money around. Uh, the actual business was in an early phase. Nobody really understood what was happening. They never expected to be selling millions of something. Mm. So that was unusual. And uh, I think one weird thing uh, about the, the whole 1968 period is, is the idea of this sort of conceptual way of looking at pop music. You know, pop music isn't going to be throwaway anymore. It's going to mm. be significant. Do you think that people, the, the musicians themselves, the artists themselves, are beginning to realise that actually this is something that I'm going to do for the rest of my life, which yeah. perhaps they didn't start off thinking? Yeah, I think so, yeah. I think when you're in 1963, 4, 5 musicians are thinking maybe we're going to open some hairdressers which was Ringo's um, solution to the thing you know when it ended but it wasn't going to end and uh, you're, you're in a business that you didn't really understand or they didn't understand it's like the film it's like the film industry in America in you know 1920 or something making shorts probably nobody really understood that you could make a three hour film and we're now into our three hour films and I think it's the I think it's also important the influence of art onto pop music or onto music in general, particularly contemporary art, which is new as well. Mm. It's interesting that pop music and its newness and its appearance coincides with the appearance of the contemporary art world. Mm. And that, and then you have Yoko Ono um, from Fluxus making a sort of interaction with the Beatles. And yet those contemporary artists did not become known in the way that the musicians did. I mean, they were very much sort of relying on the musicians to, to commission their things, but they weren't they weren't Damien Hurst, were they? They weren't no, household names. I mean, no one knew what Fluxus was. I mean unless you were very sophisticated. No, that hadn't lover. happened yet. But no. but um the Warhol thing was happening. Yeah. So after Picasso you see Warhol as the first sort of modern person uh, and that's a mix of having mixing the personality in with what they create and this is important about the white album and this introspective thing that pop music becomes very very personal you're adding a big slice of your personality and this is one of the key factors in the music of the beatles i think i think mm. that's why it's so uniquely attractive it's that we sort of love their personalities as well i think the the lennon mccartney thing maybe we've all got a bit of lennon and a bit of mccartney within us so that sort of duality so i think that's why maybe we, yeah. we, we like them both and, and and also peter you were saying earlier on about the sort of cynicism that was creeping in is there a sense in which 68 was kind of the beginning of the end of the 60s uh yes i think there is um Look, 68, you know, we can all sit here and talk about these lovely things that happened in 68. It was a pretty horrible year, and, mm. and in America especially, a very violent year. Uh, we had the assassinations of, of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy. Um, politics took a very peculiar turn. The, the, the Democratic Convention in, in, in Chicago, which Norman Mailer wrote about so beautifully in uh, Miami and the Siege of Chicago, um, it, it seemed a very bewildering time, um, and uh, yeah, I think I think very very much you get the sense of the end of this idealistic era, and 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 why there is this need to experiment in other directions. It, it certainly wasn't a, a naive time, and Bobby Kennedy, you know, he was kind of a rock star himself, wasn't he? Mm. I mean, that was such an interesting and tragic story, and. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm going to refer to another YouTube clip, which I regard as absolutely essential, which is um, Bobby Kennedy's reaction to Martin Luther King's death, where he turns up at a rally in Indianapolis and a lot of the audience, largely black audience, um, hasn't 
hasn't yet heard about the assassination and Kennedy has to break the news to him and uh, and of course being Bobby Kennedy he comes out with a quotation from Aeschylus mm-hmm. um, a very beautiful quotation mm-hmm. even in our sleep pain which cannot forget falls drop to drop upon the heart until in our own despair against our will comes wisdom through the awful grace of God and one really can't help thinking about the current president of the United States and thinking um, America sort of travelled a very long way in the 50 mm. years since that. Yeah. Well, music travelled a very long way in a very short time in 1968. So uh, I think that's about time to, uh, to to wrap it up. So thank you to my guests, uh, Todd Taylor and Peter Aspden. You can read previous pieces by Peter and me and other writers in a new book, the Life of a Song, the fascinating stories behind 50 of the world's best-loved songs, which is published by Brewers. And we'll be back next month with another episode. Oh, my heart, oh, my heart Is waiting to hold you Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.